This is a podcast from 3RRR, 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Joining me in the studio to tell us a little bit more about Midsummer 2018 uh, from the festival, uh, Daniel Sant'Angeli, welcome to Triple R. Hi, thanks for having me. Nice to have you back. It's been about a year, yeah. I think, since we uh, last caught up and spoke about all things Midsummer. Before we get into the nuts and bolts of the program, uh, I think one of the things over the last five years or so, there's been conversations uh, about the Queer Film Festival, about Midsummer, given that it's a, a queer cultural festival going, oh, surely we've reached a point in time where these festivals are becoming irrelevant because queer culture is just so integrated into the mainstream and, and you're also accepted and loved. And we've just had three months of a really hideously divisive uh, postal survey in which homophobia and hate really kind of re surfaced powerfully. Do you think that the last three months kind of proved the need for a festival like Midsummer? Yeah, and I think, you know, it's a really complicated kind of topic of discussion for nine o'clock in the morning. Um, But I think the... um the way I kind of think about it is that I mean, in two different ways, and I think queer culture has a right to be in mainstream mainstream culture. I think that's really important because while we um, Melbourne is amazing and we have you know an eighty three percent turnout with the yes vote, um, the I think it's really important to remember that there are um, people in um, who are queer who live in regional areas or rural areas who don't have access to culture in such an easy way that we do in Melbourne. So I think it's really important to remember that um, queer culture has a really important place in mainstream um, culture because it's. It Needs to be accessible to a wide range of people, and certainly Midsummer is accessible given that it, it it's spread across the city. Yeah, absolutely. So um, it's a it's in over one hundred uh, venues um, across Melbourne and and Greater Victoria as well. Um, and we also have a really fantastic program that's called Go West, which is about sixteen events that are in Melbourne's west. Um, and I think that's a, again a really um, important kind of indication of kind of essentially going into the suburbs as well and um, working with artists and queer culture, culture makers there. And you mentioned uh, events in regional Victoria as well. Uh, yeah, that's right. So um, we um, have a number of kind of um, uh, interesting events um, that happen in in regional Victoria. Um, the um, I think part of the Go West program um, incorporates some of those events as well. Um, we also have an exhibition as well that is um, called Queer Tech IO. Um, that exhibition is an, on, an online exhibition that is um, accessible to everyone across the world. It's one of my um, favourite projects that are part of the festival. Um, it's uh, an online exhibition of digital um, contemporary artists. Um, so we've got artists from Tel Aviv through to the US um, and the exhibition is a whole um, compilation of um, uh, about of about 16 artists um, and it's um, everything from uh, interactive games through to video art um, and yeah I think that's a kind of really interesting kind of way of kind of putting Midsummer out into the world as well. Fantastic. Well look let's talk about some of the program highlights for Midsummer 2018 which is running from the 14th of January to the 4th of festival uh, 4th of February uh, festival February yeah, it's all the same. <laughs> uh, it is early in the morning I need more coffee. Um, what would you what are your highlights? I'm going to throw it over to you. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, for, so for this year, so we've got over 170 events that are part of the festival, and about 160 of those events are part of our open access arm of the program. So, you know, like uh, with a fringe festival, um, anyone can register their event, and those events are, you know, for and by members of the LGBTQIA plus community. Um, what we recognised in our program was that there were some gaps um, and that there were some people that were kind of missing from the program overall. So what Midsummer's done is that we've kind of rolled up our sleeves and gotten our hands dirty and created an arm of the program which is called Midsummer Presents. So these events are intersectional and also about creating um, space for specific queer communities. And I think a really good example of that is an event that we're um, co-producing with Art Centre Melbourne called the Cocoa Butter Club. Um, the Cocoa Butter Club is actually a event that happens about every six months. So this is kind of like the best of. Um, and it's um, for and by queer and trans people of colour and queer First Nations performers. Um, and that is, um, that's been hosted by um, Nayuka Gori, who 
who writes for like Vice and Junkie, um, and also um, Davy Thompson, who is um, a Circus Oz performer, um, and um, yeah, features quite a wide range of amazing um, Indigenous and queer and trans people of colour as well. I think wanted to to riff off that for a moment. Just the the festival's commitment to cultural diversity uh, is writ large uh, across the program this year, and particularly on the front cover of the program as well. It's a really strong. Uh, uh, impressive, playful, but subversive image as well, which is subverting masculinity. It's representing people of colour. Uh, so it's really, it, it's midsummer flying the colour for diversity in, in many forms. Yeah, and I think that's a really important thing and to kind of get political for a second as well. Like what we saw in um, in the US, once marriage equality was achieved, there were literally were headlines, and, I'm, and this isn't my wording, this is actually from um, Janet Mock, who's a trans activist in the US, who's also a, um, a woman of colour. Um, she was speaking... Um, a few weeks ago at Melbourne Writers Festival and she was saying that um, there were headlines that said, you know, equality achieved. Um, and what we've found in the US is that there's actually now a huge backlash against people who are trans, you know, like Donald Trump trying to kick people um, who are trans out of the military. So I think for Midsummer, it's really important that while we are, looks like we're on our way to getting marriage equality, that it's really important that we take the rest of queer communities with us and that actually we put them at the forefront um, of, um, of the conversation as well. So that's what we're trying really hard to do. Um, and events like Cocoa Butter Club are a really good example of that as well. There's also a real commitment to uh, young queer people as well, whose voices are often, again, marginalised and, and not heard even in mainstream queer culture. So, uh, for example, uh, the Midsummer Youth Spectacular at the Melbourne Spiegel Tent in yeah, Collingwood. I'm really excited about this one. Um, so the Midsummer Youth Spectacular is in collaboration with Minus 18, who you know, is Australia's largest uh, queer youth um, organisation. So they primarily work with people who are you know 22 and under um, and uh, what we what we found in consultation with minus 18 is that it's really prohibitive for a young person to put on an event and it sounds really obvious as I say it out loud but you know producing an event is a lot of work and for a young person they might not necessarily have the skills or experiences to do that so the Youth spectacular is our way of creating a showcase event at the Melbourne Spiegel tent where this amazing group of young people are able to do you know a five or ten minute performance slot um, and uh, and it's open to you know not just young people to attend the event it's open to you know families and friends and allies so I think that'd actually be a really great event and it's, it's just kind of really fun I think for me it's really enjoyable because there's things like that we get to do like put on free soft drink for all the young people that come to the event and stuff like that so I'm actually really excited about that. Uh, there's also uh, a recognition in the festival that as the queer community evolves and the queer community grows up uh, that means that 20 years ago, the idea of rainbow families wasn't really part of the conversation. Uh, and now there's a, a real recognition that um, uh, there's plenty of queer parents out there with children. And so Midsummer at Art Play, uh, in partnership with uh, the City of Melbourne's Art Play, uh, creating a welcoming creative space for diverse families and rainbow families with children aged two to five. So, again, not necessarily what we expect from a queer cultural festival, but a really important commitment and recognition of the future uh, and the, the diversity of uh, fam queer families now and ongoing. And I think, and, and on top of that, the other thing that we'll be doing as well is um, at Midsummer Carnival, which is the, the first day of the festival, and it opens the festival on, at Alexandra Gardens. We have about 100,000 people come to that event and um, the, in recent years there haven't been um, activities for young people to do so we've actually created a families area so that so that for our diverse families there actually is things for them to do at that event and that'll include things like dra you know, drag queens reading um, stories and also activity stations and also um, Richmond Football Club have partnered with Midsummer this year as well so they're going to be there holding um, you know, um, football kicking matches and things like that for, for Little League as well, which is really exciting. <laughs> it's great to see. Uh, first of all, congratulations to the Richmond Football Club for coming on board as a sponsor of Midsummer. That's a, a significant, uh, again, a, a recognition of the evolution of the broader culture that we live in uh, and the, the idea of... Uh, kind of AFL players holding yeah, kick-to-kick -kick and handball competitions at the Midsummer Carnival is just delightful. It really is. Yeah, and I think the conversations we've had, we've had with Richmond Football Club as well have been um, really interesting. And what they've found statistically is that for um, particularly for, um, uh, what, yeah, for, for, pe for people who identify as queer, that at around the age of 13 is when they drop out of um, uh, 
team sports. And when I think about my experience, that's definitely the case. Like I was playing team sports and playing soccer as a kid. And then once I began to realise that I didn't quite fit in with the rest of my teammates, I dropped out. And so I think um, partnering with organisations like Richmond Football Club as well are really important ways of messaging that um, that sport can be a safe space for for queers. Um, and um, and I, yeah, and only now am I beginning to actually get into AFL now that I realise, oh, actually this can be a space for me. Um, so the um, the cup that they recently won is going to be um, at Carnival as well. The and Premiership the, Cup. The Premiership. <laughs> clearly, I don't follow <laughs> AFL. Um, the that's going to be um, at the at Carnival, and everyone I mentioned that too. That's a Richmond Football Club fan, they like they, they lose, like yeah, they, yeah, they, they lose they their lose shit. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, there's a, a, a few uh, Richmond fans here at Triple R, so uh, they'll be very happy with that partnership <laughs> as well. Um, to briefly dip into other aspects of the program, and I know because it's an open access festival, uh, it, you can't be on top of everything and talk to everything. But I'm I wanted to talk about the the hubs that are part of the festival, uh, and so we're seeing again that notion of venues partnering with Midsummer, putting on their own program uh, and programming their own events, but making those events very much part of Midsummer. So the fact that Art Centre Melbourne are a hub now uh, means that uh, uh, Panty Bliss and friends from Ireland performing in Riot are part of the festival. Uh, John Barrowman, who many people will know from science fiction shows like Doctor Who, Torchwood, Arrow, is also performing at the festival because he's uh, a really successful and established music theatre star. How important is it to have hub venues presenting work in Midsummer? Oh, it's so important. And I think for... I mean, so we've got five hubs. So they're um, Art Centre Melbourne... Gasworks, uh, uh, the Hair Hole, which is Hez, the Hairs and Hyenas bookshop, um, Chapel Off Chapel, and then also La Mama. Um, and I think having those um, hubs as part of the festival is really important because what they're committed to doing is providing programming across the entire three weeks of the festival. So pretty much you could go to any of those venues any night and there will be something on. Um, and they're also committed to accessibility as well. So, you know, they'll provide, uh, make sure that they provide particular access services too. Um, and they, they're really important in, about, in terms of like creating space of critical mass and um, also they're really great at supporting the produ- the event producers who are creating events there um, and there and I think um, what I'm really proud about those hubs as well is that they're actually all quite different as well so if you want something that is like small and intimate um, then um, uh, going to the hair hole is I think a really great experience and there's some really great events that are going to be there um, we had leather lungs perform um, at our launch last night um, an incredible singer um, and a lot of fun as well so they're going to be be at the hair hole. Um, but then if you want something that is kind of a lot more um, bigger scale and more raucous, then definitely Riot at Art Centre Melbourne. Um, I'm really happy to have Panty Bliss, who someone described to me last night as like the Taylor Mac of Ireland. Um, and yeah, really excited to have Riot there, which is like this um, big cabaret um, a variety night, um, but very political um, and um, but also at the same time a lot of fun and very Irish. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and as well as the hub venues, there's also then a range of programming uh, presented at other venues. So at 45 Downstairs, you can go and see work. For example, Red Stitch Actors Theatre are presenting work. I'm really excited by some of the programming that's on. Uh, the ta- You just mentioned Taylor Mac, so the fact that uh, Red Stitch are presenting the Taylor Mac play here. Uh, for those people who don't know Taylor Mac, Taylor's uh, gender uh, pronoun is Judy Mm. Um, uh, and here is again about gender pronouns and changing gender and uh, the, the impact of the patriarchy on families when families decide to upend patriarchy and many other things. It should be fantastic. And uh, Daniel Clark's directing that. So really looking forward to to getting along to that production. And there's also uh, a production of Tommy Murphy's play Strangers in Between. Tommy uh, is the the playwright who adapted Holding the Man for the stage. Uh, Strangers in Between is an earlier play of his set in King's Cross. And again, it's about family and finding yourself. And that's being uh, directed by uh, Daniel Lamon. Yeah. And based on his real life experiences as well, which I think is um, a really nice kind of change from something like Holding the Man, which was about, you know, someone else's lived experiences, but to actually have that kind of reflection on Tommy Murphy's life as well, I think is going to be really exciting. There's a lot to talk about in the 
Midsummer Festival program for 2018. Sadly, we don't have time to cover everything in detail, <laughs> but uh, if you pick up a copy of the program, I'm sure it will be hitting your your usual bookshops, laundrettes, cafes, etc. from today. Uh, and the program is, of course, online as well at midsummer.org.au. Midsummer Festival, Melbourne's queer cultural festival, runs from the 14th of January until the 4th of February 2018. Daniel, there's a lot to uh, to celebrate in the program next year. Yeah, there really is. And I think, you know, 50% of it is free. There's something for everybody in this program as well. So um, no matter how you identify or whether you want to be indoors in the air conditioning or outside playing a sports event in summer, there is something for everyone. So I'll see you at midsummer. See you at midsummer. As always on the show, I like to talk about a range of art forms. So we've talked about queer cultural festivals, we've talked visual arts. We're going to talk circus now. The National Institute of Circus Arts, NICA, are presenting Please Hold, uh, uh, which is on from next week, the 29th of November through until the 9th of December, directed by Kate Champion, who joins us in the studio now. Kate, welcome. Thank you, Richard. So you're kind of freelance now, effectively, aren't you? Yes. I am, I am, uh, in a way that's different to how I was freelance before I started my company. So, But, yes, I, I am, I guess, technically freelance. Yeah. So what skills do you think you bring to directing circus? Because uh, with your company, Force Majeure, which you've now moved on from, kind of you became very well known for kind of physical work and very dynamic work and work which could challenge perceptions and preconceptions around bodies and who owned the stage and so forth. There's a lot to unpack there. But talk to us about directing circus. What do you look for when you direct a circus show? Well, it's quite a challenge because innately circus is driven by attaining the highest skill of a certain apparatus or something a body can do. So unlike dance, it's not... Its priority isn't necessarily to convey meaning or emotion or even to have a context that relates to story or narrative. So my challenge has been to try and look at those things they work with and how they work with their bodies and see if I can unpack it in a way that I haven't seen before. And I've tried to respond honestly to the students and to where they're at in their lives. So they've spent three years, 21 of them. Some have been there four or five years, but generally three years, uh, training extremely hard as a group. And they therefore have a dynamic as an ensemble. And it's quite rare to have 21 highly physically trained young people to work with. And so I'm looking at how they feel about how they train and what it's like to know that they're on the threshold of going into the real world. Now, that challenge uh, that it presents, though, must be an interesting one to try and tease out and, and work with because they're graduating, they want to show off their skills. So to one degree, you have to go, right, we have to make sure that, I don't know, whoever is the aerial... Janet kind of, gets a moment on her... Yeah, everybody gets their, <laughs> their, their highlight. But trying to, so trying to then create a show that is not just a choppy succession of, 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 of tricks. Exactly, although they have swapped around what happens within this last year where they do a thing called showcase where they all individually they do solos of their specialties and that used to happen at the end of the year but it happens now mid-year so the students get that opportunity to really shine in their specific individual skill or apparatus so I'm not having to do 21 acts and make sure they get them in because they have done that earlier in the year. My brief is really to give them the experience of working in an ensemble because that is often now, particularly with contemporary circus, what's required of them. They they don't, I mean, circus Cirque du Soleil might be different or the larger jobs and world circus, but they're often required to do a lot of things, to speak, to act, to move, to dance, as well as their circus skills. So that's what I'm looking at is how they can work cohesively. And, and also circus is one of those incredible, it does have a lot of humanity in it in that it has failure very nearby like there's always the risk of failure there's also the necessity to work together as a team in order to achieve a lot of the things and that community spirit is appeals to me a lot 
And it's certainly one of the things that, that then working with 21 performers kind of uh, enhancing that sense of community and that sense of connection between the artists must be a fascinating challenge to, to tease out and explore as well. And particularly, you know, given your background, I mean, you've been a performer yourself uh, as well as a director and a choreographer and so forth. So you bring this range of skills to them to... to how, do, how do you then use those skills to, to channel and focus and heighten and highlight that sense, say, of connection and, and community building amongst the students? Well, I observed them for a lot training and tried to pick up how they are with each other. I also looked at the, what they were doing. For example, a trapeze. We all, we've seen a trapeze. We can predict what happens on a trapeze. I don't want to just present a very um, predictable trapeze act. So I've looked at 21 people and one... or 20 people and one trapeze. What can happen then? So, for example, I've set up situations which aren't the norm for how they would approach it and seen how their personalities, how they work together to do it, and they've just taken to it like ducks to water. They've they've been fantastically open-minded to work with. Now, the show is called Please Hold, uh, which instantly uh, evokes the nightmare of contemporary uh, telecommunications. When you (laughs) call a large corporation or a company, you get that hold message. You don't get to speak to a human. That notion of um, humanity being disembodied or removed from contemporary life and contemporary conversation. Thematically, is that something that the show is exploring? Well, there was a story that one of the students told me early on where he can walk into a room and see a lot of other students uh, training their hand balances or their handstands, but they've got this iPhone there or their phone on speaker next to them and it's on hold. And it's because they're on hold to Centrelink for their student money or whatever and they can't get through, so they may as well practice their handstands while (laughs) it's happening. So I haven't put that in the show, for example. But also the idea of um, please hold your breath when you're anticipating someone might fall from a great height, you know, hold your nerve, uh, please hold that handstand just a little bit longer uh, and, yeah, please hold on, on, on the phone as we so often do and, and it's a, such, as you say, something we all can relate to. And I imagine also something else that you can then extrapolate from that is please hold me, that, the, the need for connection and for intimacy as well, which, uh, again, because circus being such a physical art form, it's very good at conveying that the human need, human desire. Absolutely. Please catch me. Um, it's not really a circus. Edward Locke, who had a company, La 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 Human Steps in Canada, he, he just did this most beautifully succinct quote, which I think lends itself incredibly well to what circus is and it's risk incites passion which instills hope and I think that so perfectly sums up how I feel about circus the fact that they are putting almost their lives on the line uh, and that we go with them into that moment and there's something transferred from our experience of watching a human being do that even if we're sitting on our bum in the audience that gives us an uplifted moment of hope. Now have you been down in Melbourne working on the show for a while? Because you were, you were based in Sydney. I'm assuming you still are. I am. Uh, I actually came in early October, but only part-time. So I got to work with the students three hours in the afternoon, but I was able to observe them in the day. And we've been working full-time since the beginning of November. Right. Because one of the reasons I asked, uh, just recently uh, Circus Oz presented Side Salt at the Melba, which was a a festival of experimental circus. Uh, And uh, I love the idea that um, circus is an art, is still a growing art form. It's what we call new circus or contemporary circus is really only 30 or 40 years old. So compared to the the great tradition of, of ballet or even contemporary dance, the tradition of theatre. Circus is still an evolving and uh, and very dynamic art form that isn't perhaps as... Uh, it, it doesn't have the traditions and the structures that dance or, or theatre might have. How, for you as, a, as an artist who has worked in dance, in theatre in, in, and, and physical theatre as well, kind of what potential do you see in, in circus and particularly Australian circus arts to really emphasise the art and to grow and to push the, the boundaries of the art form even further? Well, you know, it's actually a full circle for me because the very first main stage show that um, was commissioned from, that I directed was Legs on the Wall. It was in 98 at Belvoir. And so that I already, it was trying to, I was very interested in how theatre and dance could intersect 
um, with Circus. And my brother was also almost an original member of Circus Oz and we did a show together. I actually even did a trapeze act with him when I was 19 or 20. So it's interesting full circle for me. So I've watched it from the sidelines even though I left it and went more to dance theatre. And I think... Australia has a particular way of approaching contemporary circus and I guess we're not precious about what we steal and experiment with and that goes for dance theatre as well but particularly in physical theatre I think Australian circus has a, a flavour of experimentation and you're right I think it is re-blossoming again I think these things happen cyclically but um, I think it's the thing of not fearing to, to try things out and as I said steal like bowerbirds but why not to um, enhance and discuss discover more about the form. The students who are performing in Please Hold, as you said, these are the, the graduating students from NICA, the National Institute of Circus Arts. They're going to go out now and some of them will perhaps uh, will be picked up by Cirque du Soleil or uh, one of the, the, the European companies or another Canadian company. Others will stay here in Australia and create their own small ensembles of three or four or five and, and start making their own style and circus as well. What are your hopes for the students? It's almost like you've met them because that's more or less true. There's some that really want to start their own work. There's a, one student already has a contract with Cirque du Soleil. Uh, look, I hope that they uh, don't feel disappointed if they don't... I hope they don't put all their eggs in one basket and I hope they realise that there's a multiple ways that you can impart what you learn from circus. So whether it's one one student wants to start a circus school on the Cook Islands because for the disadvantaged, disadvantaged children there, what a wonderful thing to do with what she's learned. So I, I, they're very enterprising, they're very open-minded, so I won't be surprised if they get work in a variety of forms and unexpected ways even. Kate Champion, thanks for joining us. Thanks, Richard. Red Stitch Actors Theatre. Uh, their latest work uh, opened last night. It's called Desert, 6.29pm. Uh, and uh, I'm joined in the studio by playwright Morgan Rose and performer uh, Eva Seymour. Welcome to you both. Thank Thanks. you. So, uh, Morgan, given that the play is yours, I'll get you to introduce it. Give us the elevator pitch. What's, what's the play about? <laughs> Well, it was actually inspired by uh, a Bobby Gentry song called Ode to Billy Joe. Uh, and uh, in the song, the song is all about this girl. It's delivered in the first person. And it's about this girl sitting at the table with her family. And the family's gossiping about things that happened uh, in the town that day. And then you start to realize that one piece of that gossip she has a, a per very personal uh, and kind of tragic connection to. But she has to keep that connection a secret from her family. Uh, and so I was interested in the idea of how uh, we kind of hide very significant pieces of ourselves from the people that we love the most. And so in this play, we see a family around the table and that, that exact same thing happens. But in, in Desert, it's all about... Um, this uh, the protagonist is Zan, and she's a closeted uh, gay kid living in the middle of nowhere, and so she's kind of hiding that, and another uh, another little secret which I won't mention no. <laughs> from her family. Yeah. yeah. So Eva, you're playing the the character of Zan. Yes. Uh, talk to us about uh, the the character herself. What's kind of how difficult was it for you to find the character, to find the truth in the character, and, and bring it out on stage? Um, I fell in love with Zan the first time I read the play. I was saying to someone last night, it's like the most delicious dialogue I've ever been allowed to say on the stage. Like it's so much fun, and she's she's really witty. She She's very bright. She's very funny. Um, and she's just kind of, I don't know, she's just this brilliant 17-year-old that you kind of, you fall in love with. So I guess what was difficult with Zan was the um, the the parallel storylines and how much she can show to her family of what's happening to her and still allow the audience to receive what's happening. Um, so it's, you know, it's been a delicate balance, but um, Zan as a character is, she's my favourite character I've ever been allowed to play. So, yeah, it's been a joy. <laughs> I, I, that notion of um, being able to show the audience one truth while concealing it mm. simultaneously is a, a fascinating thing to try to, to play out. And how much of that was in the script and how much of it needs to be embodied by the actor? 
I think so the plot is kind of kind of a secret so it's mm. I mean it's all subtext so everything that they're saying uh, is actually in direct contrast to what's going on inside of them so I think it's I think it's in the script. If you read the script, it's there, yeah. but it takes a lot of mining. So the actors and, and Bridget, the director, have had to do a lot of work to, to figure all of that out and to figure out how to communicate it. Mm. Families are... Everybody has one. Not everybody <laughs> loves them. Yeah. They seem a, kind of a rich source of, uh, of, of drama to mine. Mm. Uh, talk to us about the, the other actors that you're working with uh, and the, the family who are being presented on stage, mm. Eva. Oh, we've been so blessed because we love each other so dearly. Like, it's, um, it's been such a wonderful experience. And from day one, we all really had each other's backs. And I think the way it also kind of bled out in the rehearsal room as because it's, you know, me and then the guy playing my older brother and then mum and dad... And we all just started communicating as a family when we weren't rehearsing. That's that kind of biting, snapping, like little niggles at each other. It was really quite funny. But, um, no, we love each other so much. It's been wonderful and everyone's really perfectly cast. So we just have a lot of fun together. It's brilliant. And did you have to draw much from kind of your own family, Morgan, to present this or is this all entirely fictionalised or, or do you just kind of sit on trams observing other families and uh, taking of, down notes? Yeah, all of that. So it's, it, there's pieces of my family, but I'm American. So, I, and this is, this obviously takes, it's a very Australian play. So mm. the way that I feel like the way that Americans communicate is a bit different than Australians. So I've kind of taken elements of my family, but then been like, what, what happens when you put an Australian voice on that? And yeah, and also, you know, eavesdropping plenty. <laughs> <laughs> what is different about the way that Australian families communicate versus American families? Oh, well, I think Americans over communicate. <laughs> We're a very excited bunch. Uh, and we like to, we like to fill fill the air, right? We're, we're, very, we're terrified of silences in conversation. So if there's a lull, we like all immediately panic and just toss something into, into the centre. Yeah. Uh, whereas Australians, they're, they're very comfortable with silences and they don't, they don't say things unless they need to be said. Um, and so, yeah, there's a, there's a lot more space in, in this dialogue than, than if it was an American family. Yeah. So does that mean, for example, how would, would the, the play transfer if, it, if, if an American uh, theatre company would to read the script and, and pick, it, pick it up? Would they go, wow, this is... Would they notice that difference, do you think, and would it work on stage or would they have to adjust the script to, to think, make it feel more American? Yeah, I think there's pieces that they would relate to, but I think if it was to be done with American accents, it would need to be rewritten a bit. Yeah, mm. yeah. Eva, talk to us about the style of the script, the language. The, you, you said that you fell in love with the character when mm -hmm. you read the script. How did, what, for, give us an for people who perhaps haven't seen Morgan's work before. Give us give us an impression of what the script sounds like, reads like, feels like. It's uh, well, I was so blown away reading the script and then meeting Morgan and realizing she was American because the vernacular, the Australian vernacular, is so clear, and it's the way we, you know, it's the way we talk, and it's clever and it's it's funny but underneath there is so much going on that we're not saying and it's really clear to me and and the way that we we work as actors with that is quite interesting as well because we're a family and we love each other very dearly but there's so much not being said and so the dialogue on top is fast and it's you know it's 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 I don't know what the word is it's it's constantly rolling and then there's you know a lull but there's so much happening that isn't actually being communicated between the characters and I thought that was so um so clearly Australian and uh yeah very apparent when I first read it now Morgan you're from New Orleans aren't you originally yeah, yeah. born there <laughs> yeah how what brought you to Australia was it did you come here to study, to work? Because you've been here for quite a few years. Seven years now, yeah. So I came originally to uh, do an internship with a theatre company in, in Brisbane and then I met my partner and I and I stuck around. That seems to be a bit of a, a, yeah. a common thread I've found in a lot of conversations with internationals who are now living in Australia. Yeah. It's kind of like, yeah, I fell in love, I kind of stayed. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, but I love it here. I I, um, I was originally in Brisbane with, with, her, with my partner and... Um, 
and I wasn't sure about the whole life. I was like, I don't know, I've moved across the world. And then as soon as I got to Melbourne, I was like, no, this is my city. I like mm. it. Yeah. Yeah. Now, uh, Desert 6.29pm has been developed over the last couple of years through the uh, the Inc. Uh, program at Red Stitch, which, because when R- Red Stitch started, they were dedicated to doing new international work. Yeah. And over time, they've maintained that tradition uh, and maintained the ensemble and so forth, but have been developing new Australian work in recent years. And this is the, the latest play in that series in that season. How important for both of you, uh, how important are these kind of development programs in our industry? Oh, it's just been amazing. I was just telling Eva right before we walked in here that I feel like we really made the play that we've set out that we set out to make Mm. and that's so rare so often you start to make something and then it has to take all these twists and turns and you make a thing and you're like oh well it's close but this one was really it is the thing that we wanted and that's because we had three years with the same people working on this script and so we got to to finesse it and 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 go that deep to make it what it what it's supposed to be absolutely Yeah, and it's, it's you know, it's such a brilliant program that Red Stitch has created. It's very unique and I think it's really needed because it gives not only, you know, the playwright and, you know, a, a platform and a world in which to work, but then the actors, because, you know, we started rehearsals on this play, you know, just longer than a month before we opened, but we've been working on it for the past year, you know, with the same people in the room with the director and the dramaturg and the playwright there. Like, it's just gold. It's wonderful. It's very rare to have that opportunity as opposed to just going, right, uh, we've met six weeks beforehand, here's yeah. the script. Yeah, Let's totally. Just, yeah. And yeah. I feel like that's the way theatre should be, you know? Like mm. we're a community and we're making a thing together. It feels like it belongs to all of us and that's a really great feeling. Yeah. The production is the latest uh, show from Red Stitch Actors Theatre. It's called Desert, 6.29pm. Uh, it opened last night and is running through until the 14th of December at Red Stitch, uh, which is at the rear of 2 Chapel Street, St Kilda, just over the road from the Astor Cinema, if uh, you're trying to place it geographically. Written by Morgan Rose and uh, starring, amongst others, Eva Seymour. So thank you both for coming in. Thank you so much. I'm joined now on the line by Fleur Kilpatrick, who joins us uh, usually fortnightly for our Shoot the Messenger segment in which we review and discuss and critique and enthuse and I occasionally sneer with disdain uh, about work that we have seen on Melbourne stages. Fleur, hello. I'm glad you could join me for uh, my final show of 2017. Hello and congratulations on another wonderful year of making your show and doing what you do. Oh, thank you very much. I'll be back in very early January. I'm really excited. Normally I don't come back until late January, so I'm finishing earlier this year and coming back early next year, so it means I get to talk about a lot of midsummer stuff in January. Oh, which of course. How I'm, wonderful. Yeah, but we've seen some wonderful stuff this year, so I thought, yeah, let's do this final program of the year by talking about our performance highlights of 2017. There's been some yeah. great work absolutely there has been trying to get it down to a like a manageable list has been a bit tricky but something i've actually been really delighted by in general is actually seeing some great remounts and remounts are pretty weird and strange and don't always happen in theater so to see wonderful shows like hello goodbye happy birthday peace for person and ghetto blaster and two jews walked into a theater getting another outing was absolutely wonderful and one of those one of my favorite shows of the year was a remount that was tricky warning by Zoe Coombs Ma. Uh, it was just incredibly smart, not only in terms of content, but it also its form. And also, I don't think I've ever laughed so hard. Uh, it was such a delight to see it. It hit so hard and yet was so delightful. Zoe uh, performs for most of the show as her alter ego, um, uh, as a Dave. dude, Dave, Dave, as a Dave, Dave the Aussie the... dude comedian who has this inner clown that unfortunately is a killjoy lesbian called Zoe Coombs Ma that occasionally slips out to uh, delight us all. I need to get shut back in the box as soon as she's finished. I, the the meta theatricality of Trigger Warning delighted me. I also got to see it again this year, although I saw it up in Brisbane rather than here in its return season in Melbourne. It won uh, a Green Room Award a couple of years ago uh, from the Independent Theatre Panel, which is testament 
comedy doesn't normally get those kind of rewards. No. So it's a testament to the fact that the writing in Trigger Warning was so good. I want to uh, highlight one of my absolute kind of standout performances of the year, which was, again, uh, uh, in the art form of comedy, uh, Hannah Gadsby's uh, Nanette, which is uh, having has just, I think, had a return season at uh, Hamer Hall here in Melbourne. Um, and what both heartbreakingly kind of uh, soulful but exquisite uh, as a show, uh, using the art of comedy against itself, depriving us of laughs rather than breaking the tension with a joke. It's just... And it's one of the best pieces of art I have seen on any stage all year, without a doubt. Absolutely, absolutely. It just refuses, it just gets to the point where Hannah has refused to play the game and the game is to make her life, uh, is to is to um, make her life less dangerous and less real by making it funny. And yes, but, um, this is the story of her just... Uh, just bowing out of that essentially and potentially bowing out of comedy as well. So uh, incredibly special piece. It was a real privilege to see Nanette this year. Um, I want to give a shout out to an actor as well. Um, Emily Goddard, I saw her in a piece that she wrote as well as performed called This Is Eden, uh, where she was absolutely outstanding. It was a real combination of, it was very, very dark, but using a lot of her clowning skills and her physicality was incredible. And then we saw that again in another one of my favorite shows for the year, Angels in America, which is a very different style to This Is Eden, but you saw Emily's immense detail for physical performance coming through in that work. Angels in America was uh, one of those ones that feels like such a privilege to get to see. It's not going to happen very often. It's such a gigantic work. So to get a chance to see it here in Melbourne with such an outstanding local cast felt really special Uh, I want to give a shout out as well to the set design because to be in that space for so many hours hours upon hours and still by the final hour that set was surprising me and the lighting was surprising me and elements coming through and the space that we'd been in for so long kept opening up and out and revealing itself in new ways so that was really special too. I want to give a shout out to an actor as well. I want to give a, sh- a shout out to Kate Mulvaney uh, mm-hmm. uh, in Richard III. Uh, I don't know if you got to see the, that. This no, belle. I didn't. Uh, so a, a Bell Shakespeare production, Bell as a company, clearly having a, a, a bit of a renaissance at the moment. But this was such a powerhouse performance. I I love Richard III as a play, and this was absolutely one of the best productions of it I've ever seen. Colt, Kate Mulvaney drawing upon her own uh, physicality to play this kind of uh, deformed, monstrous king who is normally portrayed as such a villain. And here she allowed us to empathise with him, to see how he had been because of his uh, uh, physical so-called deformities, which made him monstrous in the eyes of of, uh, of the day. He was seen as, kind of, I, I know, cursed or, or a creature of the devil. He was then mistreated by the people around him. And so we see that the end, the character we see on stage has been emotionally disfigured and warped by the cruelty of the people around him. To have mm. that exercise in empathy with a, a character who is normally such a villain i thought was it was a gift uh as mm. as an audience member to watch that particular performance amazing and i do have to agree with you that bell shakespeare just had an outstanding year because also high on my list is their production of merchant of venice which was as dark and painful and and truthful about its darkness as it was funny somehow it managed to encompass those things that was directed by annie lou sarks and she just did an outstanding job of showing us everything that play is which is deeply problematic deeply painful but also somehow still a comedy in the midst of that and she just found that balance so so beautifully um but speaking of heart and warmth and empathy an act of really radical empathy all the sex i ever had was high on my list as well and um, mine. the show that is not uh, <laughs> my personal life um but that was a wonderful piece in melbourne festival uh taking seniors and having them talk through their lives it was a real tribute to lives lives lived and lives survived and lives relished in the midst of how difficult it can can be to survive and move through years and loves and losses. 
I loved the sense of empathy it created in the audience, the, the sense of mm. connection and community. Um, all the sex I've yeah. ever had at Melbourne Festival, absolutely one of my highlights. Another Melbourne Festival show that I have to acknowledge uh, as one of the most outstanding performances I have seen, not only this year, but in many years. Taylor Max, yeah. a 24 decade history of popular music was exhilarating. I'm sure for some it will be utterly life changing. It's certainly a performance that will stay with me for many, many years to come. Four shows, six hours uh, a show, just a staggering achievement, a staggering performance and a radical queering of history and popular culture and and a, uh, a celebration of queerness at a time when the Postal Survey was getting so many in my community down. Taylor Mack's performance at Melbourne Festival was a gift. Absolutely. I only saw one night of this and I think I, the word Stockholm Syndrome came to mind, but that sounds so much more negative than it is. But I think the longer you stayed in that experience, the more it meant to you. So in the first sort of hour, it, it, it was a good performance, but it didn't have that same resonance. And then by the end of hour four, I was so deeply in it. But everyone that was able to go through the full, the, through the full 20 hours just came out so transformed because the more time you spent and the more of that community you formed and were a part of, I think it, it just resonated and resonated on deeper levels each time. I also want to quickly acknowledge a couple of pieces I saw interstate, uh, which is cheating in some ways, but uh, the, I've had the privilege this year of seeing works in Perth, in Adelaide, in Brisbane, in Launceston. Um, and at the uh, Perth Festival, I saw The Gabriels, which was this intimate family saga um tied in with the the American electoral cycle and it was realism done with such exquisite attention to detail, such subtlety, such gentle naturalism. It was unlike anything I'd ever seen on Australian stages. I got to sit on the stage uh, as, and watch the, the, the families cooking meals and talking about politics and it was about uh, it was about class issues in the US and it was about electoral disenchantment and it was about watching an outsider with a family gradually become part of the family uh, it was just absolutely joyful that's wonderful well I also want to because a big focus of mine is new writing and is the developing of new work I also want to mention that I think Melbourne is doing a much better job at the moment of creating space for new work so I guess this is in a way me looking forward to some things for 2018 but it's also just to acknowledge that um, in particular the little group Small and Loud run by Liv Satchel and uh, Georgia oh my gosh I can't believe I've forgotten Georgia's name so Georgia Simmons um, uh, Liv and Georgia have been running uh, Small and Loud now for two years. It's happening at the Arts Centre um, every month. And just to see, they just are creating such a warm and loving and enthusiastic space that is really celebrating unfinished work, which I think is so great. And then beautifully, their work, what they have been doing is really complemented by things like the La Mama Exploration Seasons, where I saw last week uh, Jeremy and Lucas buy a fucking house, which was wonderful. Um, and I really hope that someone takes notice of those sold-out houses and the rave reviews by really prominent artists and gives that work a more than three-day season. Um, and also by readings at places like VCA and venues, including Gasworks. One of my favourite readings of the year was Make Me a Hoori by Amina Ashman. So I really hope that I see that one picked up at some point. Uh, it's a really beautiful and radical look at what it means to be a Muslim woman today and a feminist and how you reconcile those things together. So I hope to see that come up in the future too. I, uh, you've talked about the importance of uh, developing new work. I wanted to talk about another really important development that happened in Melbourne this year, which was Asia Topa, the uh, mm -hmm. the, the triennial of Asia Asia Pacific Art, um, presented by Art Centre Melbourne and a range of like dozens of other partners and venues. But uh, collaborations between artists from Australia and artists from the Asia Pacific resulted in two of my most significant uh, dance experiences of the year. Um, and that was uh, Bunny, which was on at Asia Topa, which was hypnotic and uh, confronting, but subtle and exquisite and beautiful and that was uh daniel cock and luke george using the the language and the uh, the imagery of bondage uh in this um 
uh, immersive experiential dance piece. Uh, I adored it. Other people found it really triggering and walked out. And I, I can see why they did, but I was watching nonverbal communication taking place between audience member and artist as audience members were literally roped into the performance. Um, but I also, uh, found, uh, the work Attractor, um, uh, presented by Dance North, Lucy Guerin, Inc., Gideon Obazanic, and the, uh, the musicians, uh, Senyawa, just hypnotic and glorious mm. and rapturous and, uh, this evocation of trance and ritual, uh, that again brought in audience members into the work, uh, dancing on stage at the art center alongside trained, trained dancers. It's gone on to a couple of festivals since, and I really hope it has another Melbourne season because it was just wonderful. That's fantastic. Another little festival I'd love to just give a shout out to was the Yurimboy Festival as well, which was, was a festival of First Nations arts from around the world, but um, focusing, of course, on, on uh, Indigenous artists from Australia. Uh, that was so delightful and something that I loved that they had was also a black critics part of their program where they were getting people of colour to respond to the works, which uh, there's not a whole lot of people doing that. So that was fantastic to see them incorporate criticism and response and arts writing into their festival and really promoting the voices of people of colour um, as part of what they were doing in their programming. And the Black Critics Program is ongoing, which means that it will be training up a group of uh, First Nations critics to respond to work from their own perspective and it will mean more informed responses to First Nations, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Indigenous works as well because as a white critic, I do not... Uh, have the cultural knowledge to always read and perceive and see what is mm. being presented to me. So to have Indigenous critics responding to Indigenous works is a really great development this year. Another Absolutely. development I wanted to give a call out to, which is in development at the moment and will happen next year, keep your eye on Witness Performance, which is uh, Alison Crogan and Robert Reed responding to the crisis in arts criticism in this country and the lack of coverage of the arts in the mainstream media by creating a brand new web website to foster commentary and criticism and discussion about the arts. Um, I think it's a really significant development. Witness Performance, Google that website, subscribe to it and uh, check it out when it launches properly in the new year. Absolutely. And I believe that Rob is part of that as well as doing, is doing a bit of free theatre history teaching as he goes along as well, which is just wonderful. Rob is, uh, uh, is an academic as well and is an expert on the theatre, the history of Melbourne theatre, uh, which not many people, which, which we are very fast to forget, I will say, particularly a lot of people believing that Melbourne theatre sort of started with summer of the 17th doll and then, uh, and then just kicked in with just MTC or something like that. So Rob is really reclaiming that uh, history and rebroadcasting it, which I think is so exciting and important. Now, we're almost out of time, so we're going to have to wrap up in a sec, but I just wanted to quickly acknowledge, given that we spoke about Hannah Gadsby's Nanette as being so fantastic, there are mm -hmm. two performances coming up. Friday the 1st of December and Saturday the 3rd of December at Hamer Hall. Um, tickets have probably sold out, but if, but if you know of anyone with a spare ticket, buy it from them, uh, beg them for it. You must see this show. Uh, and yeah. we, we also mentioned Zoe Coombs-Ma. She's part of the outfit Post, uh, whose Ik Nibba Dibba is on at the Malt House next year, in not until September, but um, that will be a great show to check out as well. That's uh, Zoe and colleagues, uh, Mish Gregor and Natalie Rose, and I, I, it's a show about their working history together, and I'm really looking forward to seeing that next year as well. Fantastic. Well, thank you, Richard, for a wonderful year of getting to see these works and talk about these works with you. It, uh, I was so excited this morning just knowing that I'd get to talk about everything I loved the most this year, which is a nice thing to reflect on. I'm glad we got to hopefully fit most of it in. Uh, oh, we did some good speed talking there. I think we crushed it. <laughs> Flo, I will catch you soon, I'm sure, in a foyer somewhere. Uh, don't forget, folks, that the Poppy Seed Theatre Festival is on at the moment as well. You should get out amongst it and see some of that. And Flo, I will catch you in a in a foyer or a uh, or possibly a radio studio somewhere soon. I really hope so. Thanks, Richard. This has been a podcast from Free Triple R, one hundred two point seven FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. 
Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.